Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. Do you know Richard Haldane? He's unknown in Canada except in the tiny circle of experts in constitutional law. That is because he was, between 1912 and 1928, a deeply influential member of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London. That body was the final appeals court for Canada at the time, and as such played an important role in arbitrating disputes between the federal government and the provinces. Many experts consider that Haldane's judgments tilted the scales away from the central government and pushed the practice of federalism to favor the provinces. Some called him the wicked stepfather of the Constitution. In fact, they go so far as to say that his pronouncements essentially hamstrung Ottawa's ability to respond to the Great Depression of the 1930s. Who was this man? To peel away the layers of obscurity, my guest today is John Campbell, who has just published Haldane, the Forgotten Statesman Who Shaped Britain and Canada, published by McGill Queen's University Press. We reached him at his home in Gloucestershire in the UK. John Campbell, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I was just looking up to see how far away Canada is, and I'm delighted to discover it's only 2,246 miles to Cape Spear <laughs> on the east coast of Newfoundland from where I am, so I'm not so far away. Well, modern technology makes you very immediate, and I'm grateful. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on September 1st, 1913 at McGill University? Well, the short answer is that Haldane was awarded the degree of Doctor of Law by that university, and I actually have the Latin scroll, which was given to me, signed by his fellow Scots, Sir William Patterson, who was the rector and the principal of McGill, and by the wonderful Sir William MacDonald, who was on the governing body of the great educational philanthropist. So that sits with me in my library here in Gloucestershire. But I suppose the longer answer that you want is that on that same day, he delivered what I think I'd argue was the greatest of the many speeches of his life. It was entitled Higher Nationality, and he gave it to 3,000 members of the combined bar associations of Canada and the United States, who were meeting in Conclave for the first time to mark the centenary the following year of the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. He concluded the, the, the war between Canada and the UK and the US. Right, the War of 1812, we call it. The War of 1812, <laughs> exactly. Oddly enough, it was the first time that a serving Lord Chancellor, because by then he was Lord Chancellor rather than Minister for War, had ever left Britain during that time of office. So it needed very special permission from the King to put the seal into what was called commission. And he was said, rush over to the Atlantic and get back quick. And so despite the fact that he was invited personally by President Taft of the US and Robert Borden of Canada and the Chief Justices of the Supreme Courts of both uh, of both those wonderful countries. Um, he literally just rushed across the Atlantic. Um, so he went to New York. He, he, he came over on the Lusitania, the fastest ship at the time. Um, he went to New York, went up to West Point. He reviewed the 
biggest parade ever laid on in the history of West Point at that time because he was a former minister for war and then took a special train up to Montreal. And that's where he was met by, well, President Taft had just given up as president then and Woodrow Wilson taken over. The Taft came up with him and Borden and, of course, the, the, the chief justices, Edward White, the American chief justice, and Charles Fitzpatrick, the Canadian chief justice. It was a great event. Now, Haldane was born in 1856. He was educated in Scotland. He became a very successful lawyer. He turned to politics and was first elected to the House of Commons as a liberal uh, in 1885. He held cabinet office as war secretary, as you point out, between 1905 and 1912. Uh, he was also Lord Chancellor from 1912 and 1915, and then again in 1924. This man was a philosopher and a lover of literature. How did he manage his time for such a wide range of accomplishments? Well, I suppose that is the fascinating question. It's very relevant to our own times, that um, if seeing things whole is part of the answer to effective statesmanship, and I argue that he, in peace and war, was probably the greatest statesman Britain has had in the last 150 years, if you put Churchill to one side for what he did in war. And um, how was he able to do all of these things? Um, it's down maybe to a number of, um, of factors that, uh, I suppose, first an exceptional, well-trained, mind combined with extraordinary hard work. Secondly, while he loved, he never married nor had children, so he wasn't distracted as many as are uh, by domestic issues. He actually lived with the support of a formidable sister who was a great woman in her own right. Um, the, the, she was a very, very distinguished public servant, and his mother um, lived till the age of 100, predeceasing him by only three years, so he was Anyway, well looked after, so he could really concentrate. I've often said from the age of 16 to his death in 72, he could do 16 hours a day, thinking, working, engaging in the public causes that he believed in. And he would do that as much over dinner. He he was reputed to have one of the finest tables in both London and Scotland, in his London home and his Scottish home. So yeah, he worked very, very hard. But he also had a fantastic circle of friends. You talk about Asquith, Edward Gray, uh, Winston Churchill, who's subjected to one of the great Haldane put-downs. Maybe you'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the Webbs, Beatrice and Sidney. Uh, Keynes is a, is a friend. Baden-Powell, Lord Rothschild, Andrew Carnegie. Uh, you've got you've got people in your book, uh, King Edward the Seventh. You've got Kaiser Wilhelm. You've got Oscar Wilde. How did this incredible circle of people make a difference in his life? I don't think even in that you've mentioned Einstein. Oh, I did forgot Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> to come and stay with him in his home in London immediately after the war. Pretty brave thing to ask a German to come and stay at your home and then go and introduce him to his first lecture that he gave in Britain as you have standing in front of you the Newton of the, tw of the 20th century, the man who's done more for uh, science than Newton, Copernicus and Galileo taken together in Haldane's view. He had this extraordinary 
amplitude, this um, amazing um, ability to get on with everybody. It wasn't just getting on with these great names. He would um, have a fabulous relationship with the doorman at um, the war office, that he always felt that it's people that have really got the understanding of what's going on. And if you're going to make any change in life, and his whole life was devoted to bringing about change, it's, it was just essential to be able to get the facts from people. And so you're as likely to get really vital information from somebody on the standing at the door, as I've said, of the war office, as you are from the king. So he made it his job to know everybody. And I have to say that um, I don't believe there was any man in Britain that was more connected than Haldane, not in the sense of just social connections, wanting to go into great house parties. He was far too hardworking for that. <laughs> but you couldn't, if you were going to create Imperial College and then you had to raise the money for that. You needed to know the Rothschilds, you needed to know the Randlords. If you wanted to get the permission to do that, you had to know your fellow politicians. If you had to get the king to give it support, you had to know the king. And when you mention the Kaiser, if you're the Minister for War and you believe passionately the British Army is completely unfit for purpose, when he again got this poison chalice that nobody ever was a successful minister for war. It was it was the worst position you could get. But he said to the Prime Minister, Campbell Bannerman, give me the most difficult job. So he took that and then he set about reforming the, 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 the Ministry for War. So what's the first thing he does? He knows the Germans have got a general staff in, in Germany. I'll get an invitation from the Kaiser and I'll go see the Kaiser and I'll visit the general staff and I'll study how the Germans organise their army. So that's going into the heart of you know, the best practice and always prepared to go where other people weren't prepared to go and ask the questions and learn. And as you point out in your book, Haldane is is a is a, a Germanophile. Yeah. Well, this, of course, is one of the marvellous things about him, but also the terrible, terrible tragedy, that, which ended up in him being terribly, terribly vilified. And the brief story on that is that he was brought up in Scotland, in Edinburgh, went to school in Edinburgh, he goes to Edinburgh University, and then at the end of his first year at Edinburgh University, he takes a term out and goes to the University of Göttingen in Germany. And there he learns German, and he forms in love with philosophy under a brilliant Professor Lertz at the university. And he called uh, the classroom of Professor Lertz his spiritual home. So you roll forward and a fluent German speaker, best ger German speaker in the cabinet, gets to know the Kaiser. And the Kaiser actually comes and has lunch with him in Haldane's own home on one of his state visits to Britain in 1911. And then he goes on a secret mission in 1912 that nobody could be told about. So people were, when it's crept out that he'd gone on the mission, but the government wouldn't talk about it. Of course, they suspected all kinds of things come the, the beginning of the war. But he went to Berlin for three days discussions with the Kaiser, with nobody else there, with the Kaiser, the Chancellor of Germany and Admiral Tirpitz, the creator of their modern um, uh, fleet, and to try to head off the war. And of course, when that fails, everybody gets very xenophobic. So what do they do um, nine months after the war started? And they're crying out for, say, who's responsible for this? They forget 
that Haldane is the man that sent the British Expeditionary Force into battle, saved France, the man that created the RAF, created MI5, MI6, the OTCs, and the, the Territorial Army. He did all of these things. But they said, oh, gosh, isn't he friendly with the Germans? And there was a scandalous um, attack on him made by the conservative press. As you rightly said, he was a liberal. The conservatives wanted to, to dig at the, uh, at the liberals. This was the soft underbelly. And he was made to stand down as Lord Chancellor in 1915 in the May coalition. It was a terrible thing. The cleverest man in government is thrown out of office at the time of the greatest need of the nation. I'm trying to unpack what it is to be a remarkable man in his period, you, you mention his learned, uh, his learned uh, passions. You mention his uh, his incredible social and intellectual connections. He's also really old-fashioned in the sense that he's an institutionalist. This is a man who loves to build institutions. You've just mentioned a few: uh, the Territorial Army, the Officers Training Corps, uh, MI5, MI6, the the, the RAF, the London School of Economics, the Imperial College, the Medical Research Council. I'm just picking up on a few things that you, you, you mentioned in your book, the Institute of Public Administration, which regrettably is no longer. Um, is this what you mean when you, when you single out Haldane as a great statement, statesman? This was somebody who wanted to build institutions? Yes, um, he was... Um, at his heart, he was a philosopher, um, and indeed, um, after he'd given the very, very important Gifford Lectures, which is the great annual lecture given in Britain uh, for philosophy, that uh, this was two volumes, I forget, probably about 18 um, lectures given over a two-year academic period at, at a particular university. In this case, it was St. Andrew's University in 1903 and 1904. He was offered the chair of moral philosophy at St. Andrews. So he was deeply, deeply principled. And so what Haldane would do is he would look at something on first principles. And then on that, he would base whatever was needed. So he would look to see um, where a job needed to be done. Take education. You haven't talked about education um, in, in that list, just to do a slightly different one. And um, the, the university system in Britain was really very old-fashioned um, when Haldane began to turn his attention to it in the 1880s. We had Oxford, Cambridge, Durham University, and then there was London University, which was only a, um, an examining body, not a teaching university. And Haldane felt that education was the greatest love of his life. This was wrong. So what was he going to do about it? So he set about reforming a London University to turn it into a teaching body. And after a lot of, of incredible hard work, he achieves that in the London University Act, um, when he wasn't even in government. This was just as a member of parliament, as you say, but and a lawyer and a clever thinker. But he moved all the people in the right direction to change London University into a teaching body. And then he creates, so at the same time, he creates the London School of Economics economics with the webs, as you mentioned. He then goes over to Germany, looks at the German Technische Hochschule at Charlottenburg in Berlin and says, we must have a technical university. So he creates Imperial College. In 1902, he brought about the change of law at the Privy Council. And I'm sure you're going to be torturing me later on. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> about at the Privy Council. But, but in the happy days of 1902, he pursued 
persuades the Privy Council to allow civic universities to exist in Britain. So for the first time, Bristol can have a university, Liverpool, Manchester, Sheffield. So he's the foundation of our whole modern university system. Now, you can't do that if you haven't got a desire to build where something needs to be built, where there's a gap. But you always do it by thinking out what's really required and then brilliantly mobilizing the people together, the team of people that are going to be able to do it, and then somehow drive it across the line. Remarkable. This is, this is not a poor man. Haldane uh, becomes a lawyer very early on. He's a very young lawyer. And, and again, reading your book, he makes a mint very, very quickly. Well, yes, that's absolutely right. But don't forget, he had no natural advantage um, other than um, a certain amount of connectivity, but only a certain amount. He wasn't known in London society. His family weren't known in London society at all. They were Scottish, the Thumbrick Scottish. Um, but he comes with this extraordinary talent. And after struggling at the bar in the first two or three years and earning very little indeed, eventually he goes special. And in the context of going special, which is that area where you're doing so much of your work in the ultimate appeal courts of the Judicial Committee, the Privy Council, or the House of Lords, then you can get larger fees for doing that if you're able to do the job well. And it is certainly true that by the time he gives up the practice of law to become the Minister for War at the age of 49 in um, December 1905, Five, he was earning £25,000 a year, which is £2.5 million today. So he was successful. But don't forget, when he dies, he gives a vast amount of his money to great universities. And so he was very philanthropic as well. Let's turn to Canada, John Campbell. Uh, it's through his law practice that he gets acquainted with Canadian affairs, mostly by representing Ontario which was led by Premier Oliver Mowat in the early 1880s. What impact do you think that dealing with Ontario, dealing with Canada, had on his thinking? Well, I think it's a two-way street. It's Canada on his thinking, his thinking on Canada. Um, you're absolutely right that, um, that Mowat um, was, I think, the Premier of Ontario between about the early 1870s and the mid-1890s. He's one of the longest... 25 years, yes. And truly, he was one of the fathers of the one of the fathers of the Confederation, um, and that he was a very broad-minded individual. He worked very closely, but I think he went into government with Wilfrid Laurier, the French Canadian, and um, before became the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. And Holden and Mowat, although they only overlapped for a period of time, because Mowat dies like, in about the turn of the century, and of course Haldane goes on to 1928. So Haldane was a relatively, uh, he, he was born in 1856, so by, at the age of 40, when um, when, when Mowat hands over as Premier of, of Ontario, uh, Haldane's really just getting into his stride. But they had an enormous amount in common. 
And I think that this series of disputes that arose with the Dominion over provincial boundaries, liquor licenses, trade and commerce, all of those things, the, the rivers and streams and stuff like that, that, that it was um, Moet that really promoted provincial rights um, and he repelled and was weakened the federal government in the, their authority over provincial matters. And Haldane empathised with that enormously because you know, Haldane as a philosopher, and this is incredibly important to understand, that the, um, Haldane's interpretation of Hegel was that the greatest states, the most, the states that are going to survive and be sustainable and work, are built from the bottom up. You don't impose a state from the top down. That you don't have the authority if you were trying to impose it from the top. The people have got to want the state. And so his extraordinary simple concept, which is so utterly relevant today, and it's why I'm so optimistic post-COVID that we're going to get a reformation in our times, is that um, you, Patrice, should be you run your home with the greatest degree of, um, of, 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 of lack of interference. But obviously, you need to ensure that in the village you live in, or the, the, the town or the city that you live in, that there are police forces and neighbours you're working with. So you, Patrice, are not just a member of your own family in your own home, you're a member of your village or your town or your suburb or whatever it might be. And then if you're in, in England, you're a member of Gloucestershire County. And then I'm a member of England. But I, John Campbell, are a member of each of those because each of those bigger bodies is doing something for me that I couldn't do myself. So I am Gloucestershire. I am England. I am the United Kingdom. I am NATO, I'm the World Bank. And so Holding was always from the bottom up, only hand up things to a higher level that can't be done better at the, at the lower level. But John, that put him on a collision course with that other Scotsman who had quite a hand in shaping Canada's constitution, and that's John A. Macdonald, <laughs> who wanted a strong central Canadian government. So to, to there was a battle then for 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 the soul of the country that was being played out in Haldane's mind. Well, that is exactly it. And of course, the, um, Haldane, in all of his legal work until the day, literally two weeks before he died, he wrote his last judgment on a Canadian case, that he loved Canada. And he believed that when he became the president of the Judicial Committee of the, of the Privy Council, the JCPC, that this was the opportunity he had as a philosopher statesman, in a way, to really bend the structure of Canada in the way that he felt was going to be beneficial for the long-term development of Canada. Now, Macdonald, in 1867, had been very much more centralist, as we all know, but he was opposed in that by Quebec and others. So do you go with McDonald or do you go with others? Haldane thought it out in a principled way. And he said, 
I believe that too much centralism will lead to fragmentation because the French um, speakers will not put up with that. And so he looked broadly at what was going on. And then whenever he could, within obviously the interpretation of the 1867 British North American Act, he favored the interpretation where he could in favor of the provinces. You're absolutely right. But I argue that built a strong state. And I believe it saved Canada in 1995, when Quebec almost seceded by, you know, 1%, 50.6% to 49.4. You argue basically that Haldane gave the Federation the kind of flexibility to bend that people in Quebec would appreciate, and therefore the uh, the tree merely bent to the to the pressures of the winds, but it did not break. Well, I think that that's a very good way of putting it because you know, I posit in the book, but you know, great experts in Canada, many I'm quite sure will disagree, but I hope some will agree with me. There's a wonderful man called Fred Vaughan we might talk about, who wrote a very good book on the Constitution of Canada about um, ten, 10 years ago. Uh, but why do I think that Haldane saved the integrity of Canada posthumously, 67 years after his death? But this is what building for the long term is all about. That's why you build Imperial College, the fantastic work they're doing in COVID at the moment and in vaccines. You build for the long term. He saw that if you don't give power to the provinces and that is acceptable, they will eventually want to break out from the Dominion. So he he gives them more power. But my argument is, if he had given them any less power, they would have been that little bit more dissatisfied in 1995, and they would have seceded from Canada. So in a way, he had fine-tuned it, despite the screams, as you say, of the Macdonald and the P uh, others and Laskin and you know, the University of Toronto. People protested enormously about what he was doing. But in the end, I think he saved your country, the integrity of the country, for those that believe in, in an integral Canada. Obviously, if, you're, uh, they, if you wanted to secede, and then Quebec, uh, I suppose, uh, that you're not so key. Now, you indicate in your book that uh, he sat on the JCPC from 1912 until 1928. So that's 16 years. He heard 32 appeals. Uh, that dealt with Canada, and he actually delivered 19 judgments. That's a substantial corpus of decision-making that clearly had an impact on, uh, on the evolution of our Constitution. Now, Vaughan, uh, I said earlier, uh, called Haldane the wicked stepfather of the Constitution. How do you sit with the late uh, Frederick Vaughan's book? Well, uh, he he wasn't the first to say it. that was a quotation of Forster. Yeah. Um, that, uh, but but uh, that certainly Fred was sympathetic to the reality as he saw it that he um, allowed judges to exercise a discretion in a historical context that adjusted the law in a way that Fred Vaughan, who I totally adore, by the way, and the biggest, biggest loss to me of this whole journey in Haldane's footsteps is the death of Fred three years ago. He was enormously generous, hospitable. Carol, his wife, remains so. I've stayed with him in Nova Scotia. And then, uh, but at the same time, he was intellectual 
intellectually very, very rigorous. He loved Haldane as I love Haldane, and that he absolutely saw the great qualities of the man, but he took um, a more issue, and I felt I, I'm not aligned with Fred on the what the results of this movement have been. That I, I think that your charter... Charter of Rights and Freedoms, yes. 1982. I think that Fred would see this as giving almost too much power to judges, and that and Haldane, of course, that is the tradition of Haldane, this historical tradition. You adjust for the mood of the uh, of the time, but be taking that mood very carefully. We might talk about the general will and public opinion, and um, so uh, I, I I differed with Fred in the. What what judges should be allowed to do, as opposed to what the executive does and what the legislative does, but we weren't apart in terms of our love for an extraordinary public servant. Let's talk a little bit about his philosophy as it applied to law. Um, he he thought that the provinces did, in fact, notwithstanding the Macdonald Constitution, that the provinces did have a great deal of power and that they should be allowed to exercise their powers on on trade and commerce and 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 criminal law these are these are powers of the federal government but he thought that they the provinces had jurisdiction in those areas because they had the right to regulate property and civil rights it was a very interesting take on our constitution wasn't it well i think that the direction that i constantly come from is that at all times, but of course, Holden hadn't got plenipotentiary powers. He couldn't rewrite the constitution. He had to interpret it, but you could bend your interpretation in certain directions. And don't forget, he was following in the tradition of Lord Watson. And Lord Watson was a formidable fellow Scot. He died about the very early 1900s. And he was the person that really led this charge. In fact, in Fred Vaughan's book, he very much would say that it was Lord Watson that made the major change in favour of the provinces, and Haldane was following on that, but Haldane's a much more interesting figure. All the Watson's papers were burnt or destroyed at his death, so there's much more to say about Haldane today, um, sadly, than there is about Watson. But the, 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 yes, it, it was really um, the, a desire at all times to look to the most local level that something was effectively operable at. And that's what drove Haldane. So in trade and commerce or um, this peace order and good governance, he wasn't trying to say that because the statute of 1867 says POGG should be done at the national level and should not interfere with the provincial level, Holding was always trying to judge these things as to what was right in the spirit of the time. What he, Going back to your first question on the speech that he gave, Montreal, he laid out this great 
spirit, which was called Sittlichkeit. It's a German word that really kind of captures the process uh, of which a system of what I might call habitual um, customary behavior, something that's ethically based rather than legal. So it embraces all the obligations of citizens to each other. It's, it's something like, say, sacrifice or, or heroism in war. That is Sittlichkeit. That's doing your best for your country, not because you're legally obliged to do it. It's because it's a dedication to the country. So he was always trying to keep that spirit alive. And I think that's why that he found in these various ways, um, and sometimes um, it was predominantly for the provinces, it wasn't by, uh, by any means all, always the province. You talk a lot about his ideas, his particular ideas about the general will. You've mentioned this already a couple of times. Can you explain what he meant by the general will? Well, I'm not a philosopher, and I have struggled, thank God, with the help of a wonderful man who is a philosopher, who um, supported me on the book, Richard McLaughlin, who is a wonderful PhD, and now in his early 30s, he worked with me for five years on it, and now he's working with me on another book, which he's going to do in his own name, um, on the, whole day, the wider Haldanes of Clone. Um, what I've learned um, from studying Haldane now over a long time is that the general will is the it's greater than the individual will or the volition of every that forms society at any one time and it's more than just an aggregate of voices i call public opinion is an aggregate of voices if you just take a vote at an election they say well, this is one thing that's another the will is something that isn't just the voice of the mob it's getting to the underlying spirit of what the nation really if it paused to think about it what they would together like to achieve. And so you could literally be voting in a Republican or Democrat in America, and that's the, um, that's the people speaking in a vote in um, the, for the president. But at the same time, the general will of the American people might be something that's rather different and is an, an amalgam of what's happening in the Republican Party and the Democrat Party and the, some of the principles of each of them. And he believed that the role of the judge was at all time to try to understand the general will, the direction of society, the speed of change, and then help to give judicial effect to that. So oddly enough, it's very much in this charter that you, um, the people in Canada developed, which was so pioneering in relation to the powers that would be given to judges compared to what the power is in the constitution for judges in many other parts of the world. It was, it's you're much more as a, a nation now um, looking for that underlying will than most other countries. And yet, in our very Canadian way, we also included a section in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Section 33, that does allow for the legislatures to have the last word. It's a, it's a constant uh, toggling between giving the final word to the people giving the final word to the courts and giving and the tensions that that lie between the two this this idea of statesmanship is something that is that constantly returns in your book and i see it as a focus of clear attention in the sense that haldane was a politician he was a statesman 
in a sense that he, he was a cabinet minister and uh, given enormous portfolios. He's, a, he's an institutional builder, and he's also a judge. And, and yet the highest calling is not politician or judge, but, but what you call this statesmanship, or what he called statesmanship. It's this ability to read not only the public's mood in the immediate, but to read what the people want. That, that's no small trick, John Campbell. Uh, we live in difficult times. We live in spiritually depressing times where um, people see the activity of politicians and there are very few statesmen you can find around the world. And who, If I say to people, as I often do, can you think of a statesman today? The kind of answer I want to get back, well, Mandela was a statesman. But so often politicians end up being divisive in the modern way in which everything seems to apparently have to operate. I don't believe it does have to operate in that way, but it appears that you've got to be constantly promoting your own argument, attacking the argument on the other side. Haldane was absolutely never like that. He was never doing ad hominem attacks. And oddly enough, one of the very, very few um, sites the pithy letters that he wrote in the whole of his life. And he wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of letters, including a letter every day to his mother from the age of 16 to when she died at the age when he was 69. So every single day when he wasn't obviously at home, he wrote to his mother. There was a rather pithy letter he wrote to the Lord, the Chief Justice of Canada, who he felt just had failed to appreciate the effort the effort that Haldane was putting in to all the judgments he was taking in Canada, which I would argue killed him in the end, because and he went home always totally exhausted to Scotland, and he would always just pull himself together. He was a diabetic, and he'd recover and then go back to work. This time, he just pushed it too hard, and he didn't recover and, and died. Um, so <laughs> the, 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 statesmanship is a very different calling. It's an ability to see something in the round, to get all sides to work towards it, not to be a politician, it's to, uh, not to be, it's to be bipartisan. Um, it, 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 it's a completely different quality. But statesmanship and holding is, I think, is one of the very greatest examples that I can find of consistent statesmanship in everything that he did throughout his life. The evidence of the value of that is that every single thing that he built, with the one exception, as you rightly say, at the Institute of Public Administration, which went bust in 1992, seven years after he'd set it up, they financially mismanaged their affairs, they stand tall today. I think when you come closest to this notion of statesmanship is when you identify in Haldane a rare ability to be idealistic, while at the same time to be realistic. And I use that very same description in my own recent book on Louis Saint-Laurent, the Canada's Prime Minister from 1948 to 1957, uh, who incidentally uh, ended the Canadian practice of appealing to the JCPC. Can you elaborate then how, how a man uh, like Haldane could actually be idealistic and be realistic at the same time? 
what do I mean by idealism and realism? Idealism, obviously, at the heart of all of that is Haldane's philosophy, and that was based on the German idealists, but also on T.H. Green and others in Britain and Bosenkett and Whitehead and all of the others. And that it's this philosophy that you could really find underlying principles and that you could go out into society and make changes for good. And so that sent out all kinds of people, typically through Oxford and T.H. Green, out into the world, out into the empire, to try to build something that was really great and sustainable and mutually advantageous to all people um, of the empire, not to Britain taking advantage of the empire. So idealism was at the root of it all. But at the same time, you had to be realistic as to what you could get done at any particular point in time. Now, to give a very good example, um, that the um, that the House of Lords, of course, was dominated by the Conservatives. The Liberals come into government in December um, 1905. The most talented government, um, uh, probably the most talented government of the 20th century. And as with Gray, Morley, Haldane, Churchill comes in three years later into the cabinet. There's an extraordinary group of people. But there was no way that they could get certain legislation through the House. They could pass in the House of Commons where they had a massive majority, but it was just blocked by the House of Lords. And so until you have reformed the House of Lords, realism had it, you concentrate on those bills which will get the support of the House of Lords until you've reformed it and then you got the opportunity to do things you couldn't do before. So it was that realism of Holden. So he knew that if he played it in the right way and took the poison chalice of becoming the minister for war, that there should be enough national interest from the Conservatives and the Liberal Party and the emerging Labour Party to be able to to reform um, what was considered to be unreformable. The Conservatives had tried, they'd failed, and to the eternal credit of Balfour, the uh, Conservative Prime Minister, who was a great personal friend of Holiday, then also a philosopher, he said, we've tried and failed, we'll give you your chance. And so the House of Lords, despite a fair bit of opposition, they took out certain things Holiday would have loved to have had in, he had to compromise, he got it through. But eventually in 1911, they reformed the House of Lords and then the the gates are open for the kind of further reforms that you couldn't get through until then. It's important to uh, to note that uh, Haldane winds up in the in the Labour government, doesn't he, in the 1920s? I mean, he really does evolve dramatically on the political spectrum. Of course, he evolves, um, but 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 what you won't have failed to notice is that it's absolutely consistent in principles. Why did he change from the Liberal Party, which he loved, um, to the Labour Party in 19... He went into government at the end of 1923 uh, with that first Labour government uh, being formed under Ramsay MacDonald. He comes back as Lord Chancellor. He goes into them, not because he's being offered the job of Lord Chancellor, because he believes that the Liberals have failed in their education policy. The greatest love of Haldane's life. They weren't prepared to get behind him. The Labour Party, which wanted to educate educate the mass of people in Britain, of course, that he, he wanted to give them support. And then so that's what led to his estrangement from the Liberal Party's move over to Labour. But you've got to roll it all the way back to the 1890s, as you said earlier on, when you were talking about Beatrice and Sid 
Sidney Webb. They were the founders of the London School of Economics and brought Haldane in, effectively as their co-founder, to help to make it happen. He knew how to pull the levers to enable them to do it and gave the legal advice that they could use a £10,000 bequest or half the £10,000 bequest to set up a school rather than to give it to the Fabian Society. Now, Holden was fascinated by the emergence of the Labour Party. He wanted the Liberal Party to embrace Labour's policies so there was going to be no need for a Labour Party. And it was only in 1901 that the Labour representation committee was formed in the Labour Party in 1906. It was the first time they took seats under the name of the Labour Party. And Holding would have much preferred that the Liberals would have been Labour, speak for the working man, speak for um, the improvement in welfare, for better social conditions, for you know, national insurance, um, um, unemployment benefits, all the things they brought in. And Holding wanted that to be, that he'd have welcomed the Labour Party being part of the Liberal Party, but his fellow Liberals wouldn't allow that to happen. John Campbell, I want to, I want to switch a little bit our focus. I want to talk about you for a few minutes. Uh, you're not a historian. In fact, you've made your living as the co-founder of an international private equity and private infrastructure advisory company. What drew you to this topic of Haldane? Well, um, it was the most enormous good fortune um, that my father was a consulting engineer in the energy fields of electrical and mechanical engineering. So things like um, a great power stations around the world, great transmission schemes, dams, there's a Kariba dam, um, the uh, transmission systems, the national grid in the UK. This was the business of the company which he became senior partner. One of his partners in this wonderful firm uh, called Mertz and McClellan was a man called Graham Haldane. Graham Haldane was born in 1898, so he's about um, 13 years older than my father. Um, when Graham Haldane inherited Clone, which was the home of Lord Haldane, um, that it, I was about 12 years old and I lived in Northampton. My father um, said, we're going on a holiday to Scotland, which we regularly did, you didn't go abroad in those days, and we went to visit his partner in this extraordinary um, castle or turreted house on the hillside with a sweep of 150 miles at its feet. And I was 12 years old, I was with my four siblings and told to ask questions and be polite and all the other things like that. And so when I arrived there looking squeaky clean in a wonderful new suit and shiny and everything like that, completely the wrong things to wear, and that I was taken off by the delightful Dick Haldane, who was exactly the same age as me and who was the son of this man, Graham Haldane. And he showed me around the house. And when we went into um, the dining room and put the lights on, it was laid for lunch. Um, and that, and But when the lights went on, one of the lights lit up the man above the mantelpiece. Um, and I said, who's that? And the Dick said, oh, that's Lord Haldane. He was my, um, my uh, uncle, um, and he saved Britain. And that 
was made uh, an impact on me. It was just extraordinary, and I just couldn't. Um, I often look back on that really quite emotionally because it just changed my life. That um, that I'd heard, that was the second time I'd heard the name Lord Haldane in uh, in twenty minutes. The first time had been when I went into the drawing room when we arrived, and there was a stamp stuck on the ceiling, and I was told to ask questions. So I said, "Gosh, is that a George?" the fifth penny red stamp because I was a stamp collector and Graham Holden said yes I said well how did it get on the ceiling he said ah that was a trick of J.M. Barry he said back in Lord Haldane's time that was the first time I'd ever heard the name from a Haldane lips I, I may have heard from my father um, and then said, uh, they, they back in Lord Haldane's time, that J.M. Barry had said to the assembled um, the, uh, fellow guests, um, I bet you that I can't stick a stamp on the ceiling um, without the use of a pole or a ladder. So he took a half crown, took a stamp from the writing table, turned over a corner of the stamp, licked it on both parts, stuck it a little bit to the stamp, and then the wet side flicked it out and stuck to the ceiling. It'd been, uh, there for, I think it was 40 years when I came into the drawing room that day. So I was intrigued by this man, Lord Haldane, and eventually he became you know, the extraordinary force in my life. John, you say at the end that your work as, as, as a, a private financier was influenced by Haldane. Now, how can this be? How is that link made? How, how has his practice influenced your practice? Because you, I believe in everything, you've got to think for the long term. So we have a partnership, um, Campbell Latchins, my company, and we have 150 people now scattered around the world in different places. We deal heavily with the pension plans in Canada. The pension plans in Canada are an extraordinarily powerful, thoughtful, intelligent, long-term investor. That's what the world needs, long-term thinking. So, of course, that if one is applying the whole day in discipline, what are the kind of things that are going to interest me? It's going to be creating 25-year funds, 35-year funds that really could feed what institutions like the Canadians should be doing, even if they're not doing it, and enables them to um, have better, say, infrastructure developments for the long term, to go out and rebuild airports or build new toll roads or high-speed rail and things like that. You can't do that in short-term funds. So we've pioneered um, you know, as advisors all kinds of new things around the world, which I think are just so important. And I, I'm always encouraged in that by thinking what Haldane was able to do and what he built for the long term. And if you're building high-speed rail in France, you're building for 100 years. So that's also part of statesmanship, thinking long-term. It's corporate statesmanship. That's exactly it. And of course, that's where this wonderful you know, um, position that we ironically are in as a result of the terrible crisis of, 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 of COVID-19. And, and in a way, it's dangerous to even sound optimistic about things, but I am deeply optimistic because it's when you get a crisis like this, and which typically historically was in wartime, and thank God, 
hasn't been water. It makes people think again. And this is absolutely about getting back to the power of the individual, engaging with everybody in society, recognizing so many voices that haven't been heard. And I think we really will see some really beneficent um, changes coming as a result of re-establishing our priorities. But who are the heroes of today? Well, we need we need more statesmen, don't we? As you said earlier, your words are very encouraging, and I I really hope you're right. Now, a last question: I have to ask you the classic Champlain Society question about your sources. Uh, what sources did you did you use to write this marvelous book? Gosh, um, well, everything. And I've been following Haldane for, I'm now 73 years old, so it was published when I was 72 years old. And then I, I'm sitting here in my library in Gloucestershire. I have two and a half thousand books here, um, they're two, they're, they're, which are to do with Haldane, to do with the period he worked in, and with things that interest him, philosophy, education, law, science. So we haven't had a chance to talk about what he was doing in science, which established the Medical Research Council, and then the archives. So one goes, his main um, uh, papers are in the National Library of Scotland. As I say, he wrote every single day from the age of 16 to uh, her death when he was 69 to his mother. Every one of those letters is in the National Archive, with thousands of letters from Kings, prime ministers, Einstein, you know, that it's all there. So um, the Bodleian, that um, you know, the the um, the British Library, it was all over the place, but it's been the travels of my semi-retirement, and I took on, as I said, this brilliant um researcher based in Edinburgh who was able to go into the archive and has worked intensively with me and has helped to make me less verbose in my words. Well, I have to say I, I enjoyed reading your book I think almost as much as you enjoyed writing it uh, <laughs> this was your first book John Campbell am I, am I wrong in that no, it, it's my first book, and I write a little bit about infrastructure and things from time to time, but this is my first full-length book. But in your young age, have you now got the bug to write more history? Um, I What I want to do more than writing more history is I want to use Haldane as an exemplar to bring about change in society. And I'm delighted to say that the reaction from people that are head of the Supreme Court, former head of the Supreme Court in Britain, the former head of MI6, the former head of GCHQ, Gordon Brown as a former prime minister, the principal of the London School of Economics, that all of these people are now recognising that Haldane has got a message for our times, and that's my mission. When I'm not working uh, for Campbell Lutyens, which I, I remain as uh, still actively involved as a thinking chairman, trying to think ahead. I don't do the day-to-day -day client work anymore, but I do very much hope that I can work to put Haldane's thinking into practice wherever in the world people are prepared to hold out the hope of statesmanship and the inspiration of statesmanship rather than just putting up with uh, the rather miserable life of politics that's become our daily fare. Well, I have to say, you've made me uh, really appreciate this wicked stepfather of confederation of ours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, John Campbell. It's a total pleasure. Thank you so much.
That was John Campbell, author of Haldane, The Forgotten Statesman Who Shaped Britain and Canada, published by McGill Queen's University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutin. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on February 5th, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.